At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, March the 8th, 2020. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. You could also send me an email, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Welcome to another edition of the program. Joining us in just a little bit, Brian Wright. He has a new book out, uh, The New York Mets All-Time All-Stars. We're going to have a little bit of a fun segment here. As we enter that lull of spring training, we're just a little bit uh, over two weeks away from the start of the season. There's not a ton to talk about, although there's always those little nuggets that come up. And Brian will join me and we'll go into this book as he breaks down the all-time Mets players, puts together an all-star team. I think there's some real fun debate in this. Brian also was on the show a couple of years ago when he had the Mets in Tens book. Young guy has worked really hard on a couple of books at a young age. Really uh, admirable that he's been able to publish a couple of books and we'll have him on the program in just a little bit. So stay tuned for that. So we'll start out with, this is kind of the time of spring training where you start to poke in at stats, start to really get a feel about are there guys that are going to be ready for this season? Are there guys that are looking good? Are there guys that you don't feel good about? Are there guys that, uh, you know, what's going on? Uh, You know, they're hitting well. And there's always that balance in spring training because you don't want to leave all the hits in spring training. A batting championship in spring training, look at Robinson Cano last year, doesn't mean a heck of a lot. Winning the Grapefruit League or the Cactus League doesn't mean anything. You don't know that. Nobody knows who won the 2005 Grapefruit League. Nobody knows that. And these days with uh, how teams have advanced their thinking, you're really just using the games as warm-ups. There, there's really no intention to win. I think at some point, especially you know, maybe 15, 20, 25 years ago, there was this thought maybe that you, yeah, you get into shape, but you want to start to maybe win a few ball games in spring, develop a culture, develop some kind of winning. And I think as you get closer to that March 26th opening day, you'll start to see more of a normal lineup, at least for five or six innings. And I think you want to get a flow, but I don't really think the Mets record, a losing record, I believe it's now six and nine after they beat the Astros today. Uh, means a heck of a lot. Uh, yeah, they haven't hit a lot at all. Let's put it this way. Michael Conforto hasn't hit. Ahmed Rosario hasn't hit. Pete Alonso hasn't hit. Other than Jeff McNeil and Brandon Nimmo, you really haven't seen a lot of offense out of this team. But again, they're getting their couple ABs. They're getting their work in. Uh, there's not that juice, I think, that you need to really 
uh, put yourself in that best position to win. I think it's more of a workout. But I think as you see the season get closer and closer, you'll see these guys amp up. Now, there are going to be guys on the roster that are battling for positions, just like Pete Alonso was last year, where, I mean, Pete pretty much took off in spring training and never stopped until the season was over. That's one of the few times you see a player from the jump, and I don't mean the jump opening day, from the jump pitchers and catchers, and then whenever he reported, uh, he was on and he never went off, and that's really hard to do day in and day out for a career, and and I think he's taken a little bit of a different approach this year. He certainly is taking a different approach. So uh, as I go up and down the roster, I really haven't changed my position where I think this team uh, has a lot of positional battles. I think your 13 pitchers are set with your five starters, knock on wood, everybody's healthy. There is going to be some debate on the fifth spot, and I know Steven Matz has come up, and we'll get to that. Let's just keep that aside for now. And your bullpen positions, your Diaz, Batances, Lugo, Wilson, Familia, Brock, Gazelman, Waka, some kind of combination of, of those guys. I have Waka right now in the bullpen. Where there's some question is twofold. I think first... I'm not so sure Jed Lowry and Yoena Cespedes will be ready for opening day. I have a very sneaky suspicion, and I don't think that that's a surprise to any of you listening, that one or both are going to be in Port St. Lucie in some kind of extended spring. And I wouldn't be surprised if they don't make a debut until May. I wouldn't be surprised at all. So what would that mean? I think Luis Guillerme would have a much better shot at making the uh, the roster. His defense alone is worth it. Uh, he showed a little bit of a better bat in the second half last year. I think that puts Eduardo Nunez on the map as a righty guy um, uh, off the bench. And then the interesting part, and this is where it, it gets tricky, because Nunez would have to be added to the roster. So perhaps one of both of those guys would go on the 60-man to get him on, or else you'd have to designate someone off the the uh, the 40-man roster. So I, I'm not so sure that the non-roster invitees uh, are a shoe-in and that includes a Rene Rivera, who also might be up for a spot. Because now you have two positional spots available. Uh, do you go with a Matt Adams, who's behind after taking a week off due to the cardiac issues? Do you go with three catches? Rene Rivera, catch-and-throw guy who has a little bit of pop. In a lot of ways, I feel better about him than I do about uh, Thomas Nito. I mean, I just Thomas Nito, I know he comes with a defensive pedigree, and the pitcher's like throwing to him, and I know he's a great framer. But he just doesn't hit, and sometimes I feel defensively, it's very nuanced, his defense, but I, I, I don't always feel it. That's what the the eye test tells me. I mean, Rene Rivera at least could pop you that home run, and I think his defense is just as good in, in a lot of ways, especially uh, the synergy he has with Noah Syndergaard. So it, there's a little bit to unpack there, because if Lowry and Cespedes are healthy and they make the roster, then there's really not much to talk about. But now that's not uh, a possibility. So, personally, what would I do? Uh, You have some uh, uh, versatility with McNeil being able to play the outfield, J.D. Davis being able to play the outfield. You have Marisnik, you have Dom Smith, who's an outfielder. So, I don't think you necessarily need another outfielder unless it's a Cespedes who has an impact bat. And that's where I think uh, a Ryan Cordell, who has impressed defensively and and popped some home runs, has some power, is still probably going to have a hard time making the roster. He's going to be depth. Matt Adams, uh, I, I, I'm a, again, I'm going to put him in the Jed Lowry category. I do not think he's going to be ready for opening day. Missing a week at this time of the year, getting yourself in shape, I think it's a, a, almost a, a certainty that uh, he'll be ticketed to AAA. I don't know what his opt-out situation is. 
You know, I'm certainly thinking that he would have some kind of clause in his contract as a non-roster invitee if he doesn't make the team that he gets an opt-out or he gets the option to try to get a job somewhere else. Or if he does go down to the minor leagues, I couldn't see him being down there more than maybe six to eight weeks, June 1st, the latest. So, I mean, it's a possibility that that happens. So, uh, I can see a situation where Guillermo makes the roster and then it comes down to Eduardo Nunez potentially making the roster at that point. Um, you know, that that would be where I would would go. You have that bat uh, that you could have, the righty bat coming off the bench. You go up and down. I don't see Andres Jimenez being brought in, even though he's he's showing really good defensive uh, capabilities. Uh, you go over the to the to the fort the, uh, the the forty man, I mean that you know, outside of those non roster guys, and you'd have to make room for uh for uh, uh for Nunez. Uh, you really are set, and and I think it comes down to: Do you go with the third catcher? Do you go with Nunez? Because to me, if Lowry doesn't make it, Guillermo's on the roster, and uh, at that point, it's a matter of: Do you go with the infield? Do you go with the third catcher? Uh, Nito's out of options. I like Rivera. I don't know what Rivera's contract status is. Uh, certainly, having a depth of the catching position is important. I wouldn't want to lose Rivera. I know you have Ali Sanchez, a, a young kid, a kid that has shown that he can't hit. He's a catch-and-throw guy, but it's similar to Nito, can't hit. I mean, there's some duplication there. I think Rene Rivera is your best bet, and I would do what I, what I could to keep him on the roster and to, and to maybe have that flexibility, especially on the days when Wilson Ramos, who's going to need to be managed a, a little bit here, you're going to want to give this guy days off. You need his bat in the lineup, and you don't want him to tire out. And you don't want to wear him out. It wouldn't have been a bad situation. That's why, that's why I thought Jason Castro made a ton of sense. And, and apparently, uh, you know, that didn't happen. I don't know if it was a money situation or maybe Castro wanted a little bit more guaranteed playing time. Uh, I'm sure it's a combination of both. But, uh, you know, that's where I thought bringing a lefty bat to complement Ramos would have been important. Uh, right now, Rene Rivera is the best thing. So I, I could see that. Uh, and that's where I think you stand on the positional player scenario. Now, with the pitchers, there is something to look at. I know that, and I'm not trying to be the alarmist. You know me, but I, I saw the Dylan Batances outing yesterday. Uh, it was not good. You know, he looked rusty. I think that's to be expected. His velocity is down, as it seems to be all the time. And historically, his velocity is down at this time of the year, you know, throughout his tenure with the Yankees. But you're talking about velocity being down five, six, seven, eight miles an hour. That's huge. We'll see where that goes. Uh, he's coming off a serious injury. Uh, that usually you look at, it takes about a year to fully recover. I know it's a partial tear. I know it's not surgery, the Achilles. So keep that in mind. I don't think it'd be out of the question where he would start maybe two weeks in extended spring. It wouldn't be the worst thing. You don't want to rush him. You have guys like Brad Brock stepping up and looking really good. Uh, you know, obviously you have some depth in that in that bullpen now. You have Robert Gazelman. You have Justin Wilson, who's having a really good spring. Could go lefty and righty. Seth Lugo, you know, easing back into things. So to me, you really... You have to look at what what would be best for Batances is coming going down and having a two week situation down in extended spring. Uh, good for him, I think it is. And the guy and and he's on the forty man, which is important. Now you don't have to do any maneuvering. That I would continue to keep a look at, and I and I've liked him, but he also worries me. Is Daniel Zamora? Now Zamora is a lefty. He's a one pitch pitcher. If you go to Brooks Baseball, which gives you the pitch FX data, about seventy five percent of his pitches. Our sliders, when you get to two strikes, it goes up to well over 80. He's essentially a one-pitch pitcher. You know it's coming. It's either you hit it or you don't. It's either he executes it or he doesn't. 
And and that's where a guy like that could get you to trouble. The Mets have been putting him in it, in against righties because he's you know, they're trying to see what he could do with this new three batter rule. And he's been successful, giving up only uh, one run, I believe, in five innings, eight strikeouts, a one point eight zero ERA in the spring. You these sometimes these numbers don't mean a heck of a lot. You have to really rely on the Mets and their talent evaluators to say, hey, uh, what does this guy have? How does he look? What's the stuff? Because at times when he's coming in, you're not facing real lineups. You're not facing the most competitive part of the lineup. Yes, they're big leaguers, whether they're on the minor league side or not. They're professional players. But it's not something that I think you could take to the uh, the bank and say, well, this guy has arrived against right-handed pitching. But I would keep an eye on him because having the second lefty, the Mets have a couple of guys, not just Patances, but guys that you have to manage in that bullpen. They talked about late last year how they had to manage Justin Wilson when he got up and they warmed him up. They really wanted to get him in the game. They didn't want to have one of those up and downs with him. Seth Lugo, we know that situation with him and and, and why he's trying to manage himself and his health. It's not just because of his elbow. It's his overall body and his ability to perform at a peak level. And uh, let's face it, Juris Familia, who uh, I watched for the first time really closely yesterday, I still think is going to struggle against left-handed batters. I really do. And I think at this point in his career, he's a guy you want to keep away from tough lefties. I've said this since they traded him a couple of years ago and even before they re-signed him. That's why I was a little bit more interested in David Robertson, who turned out to be injured as well. So when you look at the bullpen, Brad Brock has really been impressive. We know the deal with Edwin Diaz. We got, you got Lugo. You got Wilson. You really have to start to look at and say, where would you, uh, if Batances or any of these guys are hurt, what would be the next guy that could provide some, uh, you know, really uh, value, whether it be early innings or even in late innings against a tough lefty, and that's Zamora. So I would continue to keep an eye on him. And if he could get his repertoire, and I don't have what his repertoire has been. I don't know if he's mixed it up a little bit under Jeremy Hefner. I guess we'll see that data if we get that as it gets closer to the season. I wonder if he's mixing up that slider a little bit or or what what is he doing differently, if he's doing anything differently. So it'll be interesting to see. So you're at that point, like I said, spring training. There isn't a ton of positional battles. There's some small things to look at, some non-roster invitees. I also think non-roster invitees really have to stand out to make the 40-man coming out of camp. I know that with some of these non-roster invitees, they have opt-out dates and things in their contract that come into play. Usually around March 20th or March 18th is when they start to look at and say, hey, you know, if you're not going to make the team here and and, and you don't think I'm going to make the team, uh, get me out of here. Let me go find another job. Or, or, you know, in some cases, I think these guys probably with the way the game is now, especially how veterans aren't always – a commodity that teams want to all of a sudden open their arms and bring onto the roster. Uh, and there's only so many teams contending. AAA, and you saw last year with Carlos Gomez, Rajay Davis, uh, you know Hector Santiago. I know all of them bounced up and down and had brief cameos, but you will get an opportunity. Dani Echeverria, got, he got his opportunity, and they wound up getting released and going out to Atlanta and, and, and playing for a playoff team. So it could happen. It's not unprecedented, and I think as you go through the season, you're going to need more than 40 guys, and it's not all going to be the prospects that are on this roster. So all these guys that we mentioned, I think at some point, are going to play some kind of role, some minor, maybe some not so minor at some point in time. All right, let's take a quick break. I mentioned the fifth spot, and I mentioned walking the bullpen, and I stand by that. Steven Matz made some news this week. Not his doing. His doing was positive on the field, but off the field, the media... Ken David off the New York Post and the Yankee rumor mill came into play and reared its ugly head again 
We've been experiencing that for the last couple of years. We'll talk about that and more right after this. What do you think is going to happen with Mats? And are the Yankees serious, and could that be a fit for a trade? Uh, I suppose so. I mean, here's the thing, Don. Like, if you're the Mets, why are you trading Stephen Mats? Exactly. Like, honestly, why are you – because you trust Michael Walker and Rick Porcello at the back end of your rotation to provide uh, both innings and quality? Because you trust Noah Syndergaard to stay healthy for a full season? If you have six starters, you keep six starters. Yeah. Like, that. that's what you do now. You gotta love early spring Yankees marketing. I've been saying this for a long time, and you guys have been listening to the show. Anytime the Yankees have an issue with their pitching staff over the last couple of years... It's always been how the Mets could gift them one of their pitchers. If it's not Syndergaard or DeGrom, and the headlines in that deal is Estevan Florial, who is some low-A outfielder who has uh, you know all these tools but no results on the field. Brandon Drury, who is the next you know you know big piece and the centerpiece of a trade uh, for DeGrom or Syndergaard, or it's gifting Zach Wheeler. Or now it's, you know, how can the Mets go go out and, and, and give Steven Matz the Yankees? This has been going on for a while. And the reporters that did that story at the New York Post earlier in this week, and let me make it clear, Davidoff is a big Yankees guy. He loves Cashman. Uh, he, he probably has a lot of ass, access to Cashman. Uh, he spends a lot of time covering the Yankees, even though he's a baseball columnist. Why not? Why not float this story and put it out there? You never know. I mean, I still think there's a part of this that's a negotiating ploy. I'm not saying that the the Mets are going to fall for it, but especially with, uh, you know, when you trial balloon things, you know, even the Yankees could be trial ballooning it. Well, what would that look like? Are the Mets trial ballooning that out there to see what the reaction would be? The Mets do that. The owner does that sometimes. Um, Not that crazy of a situation. Um, More likely, instead of that conspiracy that I put out there, the more likely scenario is... Everybody talks to everybody else. If you're a good GM and you have relationships, which Brian Cashman does and which Brody Van Wagenen does, you're going to be talking to people and I'm going to say, hey, Brody, you got seven starters if you add David Peterson. You got definitely six and Waka's going to probably want to make the team and, and you don't know how Matt's is going to perform out of the bullpen. What do you think about you know us getting together and seeing if there's a fit? You know, I don't have Paxton, Severino's out. Matt's is a local kid. He's pitched in the postseason. He's got a lot of potential. He's lefty. Why not? And you have a conversation, and you see if there's anything that comes up. All of a sudden, if the Yankees start throwing crazy names out there, and I'd be real careful, um, I recently read a book. Uh, It was a book, and I'm going to get you the name of it right now. It was an interesting book. It was basically, it was called From Chumps to Champs. It was uh, about how the Yankees of the 90s was, were, were built. And I thought it was interesting. And Gene Michael, the late Gene Michael, was in there. And you saw throughout that rebuild, what was brilliant about Michael is that he was able to bottom the team out. They had the opportunity to bottom the team out. They had, they had the cachet at that point because they were so bad they could bottom the team out. And then what they did is they were able to accumulate a number of prospects, but they knew the prospects that they were really high on and the ones they weren't. And the ones that they weren't, they were smart enough to continue to hype up 
and make those the guys they traded. And the guys they really wanted, the Pettits, the Bernie Williams, they even went as far to hide Bernie Williams in Connecticut so that they could sign him. I mean, it was really shrewd, some of the things they did. Rivera, Jeter, guys like that. They didn't trade them, but they had other guys around them that they could market. And, and I think the Yankees still do that. Remember, Brian Cashman worked for the Yankees under that regime. He learned from the best. He learned from Stick. He's not stupid. So he's doing a lot of the same things. So I laugh when I hear a lot of the names that get thrown out. The, the media goes, oh, the Yankees system is so deep. You know, this guy who's a B or C guy is better than an A guy. With another team, it's all garbage. It's all nonsense. Look at all the deals that uh, teams have made with the Yankees over the last few years. Very rarely do you get anything out of it. Very rarely. Uh, they're not stupid. They don't give up guys that are going to come back to haunt them. Good for them, but shame on these GMs because they keep getting bamboozled. Read that book. There's the blueprint. If you're a Mets fan, you want to read that book. It's a good baseball book. You'll see exactly why dealing with the Yankees is a dangerous game. And that's the same thing the Mets should be doing. So I'm not criticizing it. The Mets should be doing it. And I laugh in that same article in the New York Post, which Ken Davidoff and then Mike Puma, who, who loves to stir the pot, he's very big on that as a columnist, an old school way of going about his job. They talk about, well, a guy like uh, Miguel Andujar could be a piece that the Mets on the big league roster would want. But, you know, the Yankees probably don't want to give up big league piece. Well, of course they don't. I mean, they don't. They want to give up nothing and get something. We just talked about that. But I, then I said to myself, well, the whole article talks about how Mats would be a fit for the Yankees. But none of the proposals even remotely helped the Mets. Like, where would Andujar play? He's probably a first baseman now with a bad, you know, he's a power guy with a bad shoulder who's bad defensively at third, even when he was healthy. Uh, they have Pete Alonso at first. So I don't know where he'd play. He wasn't a good third baseman before the shoulder thing. Now he's got a bum shoulder and he's bad defensively and now he can't throw. So now you put him in the outfield. To me, he sounds like a DH. And last I looked, unless they know something obviously that we don't know, there isn't going to be a DH in 2020 in the National League. Maybe in 2021, maybe in 2022, but let's face it, um, that's not happening anytime soon. And I'm not about, and this is the most important part, of still a very promising young pitcher. I mean, he's what, 28 years old, Stephen Matz? And uh, to me, uh, you, you, st- you guys, I know he's been around forever, and I think that's part of the problem. Steven Matz was drafted by the Mets in 2009. So for those that have been watching the team and are really into the minor leagues and, and, and kind of Mets nerds, you've been hearing about this guy for over 10 years. So maybe you're exhausted by him. But here's a guy that you have to really take a step back. A guy that for his first two years of his professional career was hurt, had Tommy John, did not pitch any capacity till 2012. He was 21 years old. He was drafted out of high school, but he didn't really get into any kind of competitive games, and albeit a small sample of competitive games, until 2012. He was in the big leagues within three years after that. Not only was he in the big leagues by the age of 24, he was pitching in the postseason against Clayton Kershaw in the division series. He pitched in the deciding game. He was shaky that game against the Cubs in the NLCS. And in game four of the World Series when the Mets were down 2-1. He pitched pretty well on a Saturday night, uh, the night before the infamous Harvey game, and the night where uh, Terry Collins basically blew the World Series by mismanaging the bullpen. There's a young pitcher who just a few years earlier was just starting to get his career going after a serious injury, pitching competitively in postseason games as a rookie. 
And then he was very good, sixth and rookie of the year in 2016, got hurt later that year. And, he, and ever since late 2016, he was very good that year in 2016. Don't let the 9-8 and eight record fool you. He was a very good pitcher. He was a top, um, you know, probably top 50, top 60 in all of baseball. And then you had the injury-riddled years of 17 and 18, and I think he lost some confidence. I think you're seeing with some of the things that have been talked about at Mets camp with Jeremy Hefner that the Mets have really dropped the ball on bringing in good, uh, forward-thinking pitching coaches and player development guys to help these pitchers. I think these pitchers are finally learning about themselves so much later in their career then, and this is where I'll give you know a lot of the, what the media criticizes the Mets about, about their backwardsness with analytics. I think it's about using a lot of different tools, not just stats, but using a lot of different tools to help these guys. I think you're going to see more awareness out of these pitchers. I predict, if there's one thing I feel really good about, is that between Jeremy Hefner and the changes the Mets have made under Brody Van Wagenen, that the, these Mets starters and relievers will be will have more tools and be be put in positions to be successful better than they ever have before. And I think Steven Matz is at the top of the list on that. And he's a lefty. He's got a ton of talent. There's another lefty that the Mets actually benefited from the teams. Uh, you know, he was injured a lot too, even more so than Matz. Al Leiter didn't come into his own to his late 20s, early 30s, and had a very solid career. Mike Miner, you're seeing him out in Texas now, starting to evolve into an elite top-of-the-rotation pitcher. Don't be so quick to trade Steven Matz because you have Michael Waka. And then you have guys like Matt Eholt who used to work at Yahoo going on, well, Waka signed here and CAA wants him to start. And, you know, he's going to be really mad if he was lied to. Uh, you have to earn your spot. And I'll tell you something, and I'm not the only one, and I've been saying this since the winter. I don't think Matz is the fifth starter. I think he's the fourth starter. I think his stuff is better than Porcello. Porcello to me is a veteran. He'll give you innings. He'll give you a lot of decent outings, similar to Bartolo Colon. I think his numbers aren't going to be so good when you look at them in a conglomerate because he's going to have these really ugly stinkers that bring the numbers down. But for the most part, he's going to go out there and give you a competitive outing. Matz is a guy, and I used to talk about this with Wheeler before he really started to get healthy and move in the right direction, where I don't think he's a one or two. I think he's a three or a four. But I think he could give you stretches in games where he pitches like a one or two. And you saw yesterday in the game against the Nationals, he's dominant in spring training. But you saw those kind of outings with uh, Mats throughout, at times, throughout uh, 2019. And he got better as the year went on. And if you look at it, even with the, the injuries, Mats, if you can put all his advanced analytics in a conglomerate, and I think even Davidoff pointed this out in his uh, follow-up piece about Mats and possibly trading him, that he's probably averaging out his numbers to be a number three starter on most teams. Mets are talking about putting him in the bullpen, or the media is talking about putting him in the bullpen. I think he's earned the spot. I think Waka still, based on his performance last year, based on the fact that they structured his contract where he does get compensated for a certain amount of relief innings, I think that was always in the Mets' mind to have Waka as their depth their long reliever, their swing man. Yes, he's going to want to reestablish his value. I would not, we talked about this last week, be surprised if they do some kind of six-man rotation where they play matchups a little bit. Now, Matt's doesn't seem to be into it, and that's the key. It goes back. You even hear Seth Lugo talk about how he's anti-opener. To me, the only way the opener works is if you have the players buying into it 
and they have their mindset all set. Because preparation leading up into the game when you start is a lot different than preparation where you're going to come in in the second or third inning because you really don't know when those innings will start or end. Uh, so you have to have a different type of mindset. You're almost uh, becoming a reliever at that point, even though you're, you're, pro- you're preparing for a lengthier outing. So I don't think any of these guys, because in their careers they haven't been exposed to it, are ready for that. I don't think that that's what's going to happen. I think the scenario that you might see is guys getting skipped because there's a better matchup. And then maybe you'll say, hey, Steven, we're skipping you for this Sunday start. Your next start is going to be the following Saturday or Sunday. These three days you'll be out of the pen. This is normally a throw day. So we're going to try to get you in one of these games as a long relief situation. Or who knows, maybe a guy gets knocked out early. And even then, I think you're messing with the guy. And I think that happens if Matt's shows a lot more of the inconsistencies, especially against home road or certain types of lineups. But I think he has the potential to be more. I think he has the potential to be a really good number three. At one point, this was a guy that uh, somebody I trust that works in the minor league said a scout had told him was one of the best uh, pitching prospects he saw in the Pacific Coast League. Uh, maybe in well over a decade, and that was when Noah Syndergaard, if you remember, was pitching out of the Pacific Coast League as well. So that wasn't too long ago, and uh, that's high praise for this lefty. Don't give up on him. Look at the careers of Al Leiter. Look at guys like Mike Miner. Look at his 2016. I know it's been a rough couple of years. The Mets haven't supported these young pitchers with good foundations, with good coaching, with good tools, putting them in positions to win. They've had old-school pitching coaches like Dan Worthen, Dave Island was extremely disappointing uh, during his tenure here. Uh, I think uh, uh, what you see now is the Mets trying to get a little bit more with the rest of the modern game, not only with the drones and the tools and the technology, but the way that they're using data. And they have a guy in Jeremy Hefner who really was successful in disseminating that in Minnesota and maybe working with these guys and giving them a little bit of a different feel of who they are and how they can be successful within their skill set. And I think Mats is the guy. This is a big, pivotal year for Mats, And you still have him under control. So I don't know why you'd want to just give him away for Miguel Andujar or for some you know, prospect that's a B or C prospect in the Yankees system. So the Yankees could have depth in their rotation. When they have no depth right now, they're, they're scrambling. You have such a great farm system, go out and bring the guys up that you have uh, developed, that you talk about, that if they're good enough for the Mets, they should be good enough for you. Because the Mets are also trying to compete for a division just like you are. All right, let's take a quick break. When I come back, the Mets were mic'd up. They talk about this, and is this a good way to engage a young crowd and grow the game? I'll talk about that and more right after this. Runner! Got him, baby. Good throw. Uh, got him. The pitch, the, the relay. Rene Rivera cut down Tommy Evans. And Rene Rivera. First, one out. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> Jeff, tell us again how you got the name Squirrel, where that comes from. Uh, college. Uh, you know, I was playing outfield and uh, making diving catches, I guess. And diving catches. They, they call, he, my buddy called me a flying squirrel, and it, it, uh, somebody in the minor leagues found out about it, and it, it kind of grew from there and then, uh, you know, stuck between the big leagues. So. I'm going to be honest with you guys. He hates the nickname Squirrel. <laughs> 
My name is Jeff. hates it. My name is Jeff. My name is Jeff. My name is Jeff. Dom, you're up next in the inning, so you're going to be mic'd up. Are you going to be this talkative when you're at the plate? Oh, yeah. I'll talk. I'll, I'll open up uh, my mind and my thoughts with you guys. Let you guys in to what I'm thinking. And we're, we're just asking for one huge sellout hack. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> first, first pitch. Oh, there oh. it is, Dom. Oh, get there. Oh. Get Dom, 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 get Dom, get Dom. Don't pat it. Don't pat it. Ah, I caught it. Look at that. Nice. Look at that. I'm still skeptical on how it could be used uh, in a regular season game because, like you said, that's the, that's the big what if. Um, but I'm not necessarily opposed to trying it. If you try it, like if if guys come to a consensus where like we try it and don't like it, then then we do away with it. But I, I would to try uh, trying and expanding the game. I, I think is very important, not just not just for us players, but for I guess for the younger kids too. Because I mean I, I'm not going to play until I'm 60 years old. Like I wish I could, but that's unfortunately that's that's not a reality. And for for baseball players, our careers, um, our our days are numbered. Whether whether you have 20 years in the league or two days. So uh, I think growing the game is really important for, for the young guys, for young players. You just, you just never know who the game of baseball can touch because um, baseball has changed my life for a positive, in a positive way. And, I mean, the more the game grows, the more that it can change people's lives in a, in a positive way. I mean, uh, I think you, I mean, you guys work in the world of baseball too. So, I mean, the game of baseball, it's, it's – so multifaceted, and I think the more that the game is out there, and um, I, I think it's going to be better, not just for us now, but uh, better for us in the future as well. It was really cool listening to the Mets have a good time and the mic'd up uh, situation in spring training. You get to see these guys' personalities, and, and the more you see these guys in action – and even during the post-game scrums where I think sometimes they have to be sanitized, they have to be robotic, uh, you see the personality come out with this group, which is one of the fun things, I think. And one of the reasons Mets fans have really attached themselves. If you're a an honest Mets fan that doesn't get caught up in the negativity and the BS, you, you could see a lot of the good things that are about this team and why this is a fun team and a team that, uh, regardless of you know, where this team ends up, I think they'll be fun to root for re- it, 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 throughout the 2020 season. And uh, and I think they have a nice little run in them for the next few years. I, With that said, I know that the talk about the game has been, and we've, we've had these conversations on the show, about how the game could market itself and grow. And you talk about all these different playoff scenarios. We've heard more playoff teams, reality show playoff stuff. You know, Mike's during the game, you know, three batter minimum, player uniforms. I've always said, and I've said this for a couple of years now, baseball is kind of like the guy who goes out on a date and is always trying to figure out who the, the, the what the girl wants out of him instead of just being himself and finding out if there's a match. Because if you're true to yourself and you're honest – as a product, as a company, as a person. There are people out there that will want to engage with you and who you are or what your product is. And baseball has lasted for well over 100 years, and I know now the world is different, and we like to think that that little subset on Twitter is the whole country or the whole world 
when I assure you it's not, because I, I, I interact with more people who are not on Twitter, who are not engaged in social media at that level, than I do that are. And I can tell you their experience with sports is completely different. And their feelings on the things that we talk about, and they may even listen to this podcast, the feelings that they have on the game are, are, are a lot different. And I don't have a problem with the, the league adding entertainment bells and whistles because I think one of the things the NBA has as an advantage, even more so than the NFL, which their whole success is gambling and the once-a-week party. The NFL's a party, a chance to drink, gamble, get out of the house, tailgate, and oh, by the way, there's a game. And then there's fantasy football, and there's all this stuff. You take away gambling and fantasy football, the NFL is not a fun sport. I'm sorry. Just not. It's a dangerous sport. You can't see the players' faces. Uh, There's a lot of downtime that make it boring. Uh, The NBA, on the other hand, you can see the players' faces. It's It's a lot of theater. It's a lot of drama. The clock adds to that. The fans are close to the court. I know that that's, um, you know, the media has been pushed away because of that. I know that that, I I don't always agree with that because I think the media being close to the court would help them with how they cover the team. And I remember the whole press row that used to be at the Garden, which now is all, you know, luxury seats, basically. So I think what the NBA does is that they're able to show off their personalities because they're so close to the floor. But that's a league that uh, at times... Has, has has the same problem where you only got about five teams that could win and everybody else kind of is just uh, the Washington Generals until they rebuild their teams or they try to fight for a lottery pick. That's why they have this talk of an in-season tournament, which is interesting. So they're having some of the similar issues. But I, I think it's going to be hard to bring that to baseball, even with the mic'd up. And I know once there's a mic on a player, it's going to be hard for them to feel that they can be themselves. It could be a distraction. Uh, even though they were having fun the Mets with it. I'm not sure how I'd feel about that, if that was a big game in June on the road in Atlanta, uh, you know, on a Sunday night baseball. Uh, If you want to put a mic at first base and they know it's there and you happen to catch a fun conversation after it's been uh, scanned by somebody in, in, you know, the, 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 the broadcast team or whatever it may be, so be it. All-Star game, fine. That probably is why they put it together to test that for an All-Star game scenario. But if you really want to grow the sport, all these things are nice. The player uniforms, the mics. I'm not saying any of it's bad, but that's not the solution. You're putting patches on it. You want to add the playoff rounds, fine, but, but don't get goofy on us. You want to grow the sport, make it accessible on many levels, not just by you know government handout programs for minorities or in disenfranchised neighborhoods, but make it so that you're not blacked out when you go into certain markets with the MLB at bat app. I mean, you could watch pretty much any NBA game, no matter where you are. You could root for any NBA team, no matter where you are. You can't do that with baseball. You just can't. Um, I know that you want to connect and bring some of the fantasy baseball aspect into the in-game experience. Uh, I think you know that's been going on. Uh, I think that the Mets, uh, one of the challenges they have is that although it's a fun place to go, City Field, the surrounding area stinks. So they have that kind of you know barrier. I know that they're working on that, but they're years away from that. I think the real solution is make the game go fast. Find a way to still get your commercial revenue in a new way 
without the game being clogged down. You've, you've done some pace of play things, which I'm not really a big fan of the three batter rule because now you're messing with the game. Uh, you know, maybe by shortening the rosters in September because now teams are actually not going to bring up another 15 guys. See, back in the 80s, you had to earn your call-up. So maybe two or three guys, maybe five were called up. You didn't have the craziness that you have now where you have basically a, a, a village of people that you can't even have room for in the dugout. So there's a lot of little things around the game that are okay to clean up, but I think the access to the game, and it's not just about engaging in neighborhoods and the game at a youth level, although I think that's important. It's about the at-bat app, the internet, the videos, all the copyright stuff that they go, and I understand that once you let, you know, Disney's big on this, that they always go after whoever does a copyright infringement, no matter how small they are, they go after them. Because the minute you let things go, uh, go, you, you basically water down your copyright, copyright your trademarks. With baseball being so much about, well, we gotta got to support the local advertisers. Guys, it's not like, people are not even paying attention to these commercials. I know that's a revenue stream. I understand that. But there's got to be a way to bridge that gap. You want to throw the local commercials on for the guy who's, you know, watching in between innings. You want to have another revenue stream on the AtBat app if you can where I see a different commercial than the person who's sitting at home in New York watching on SNY while I'm in Vegas watching the same feed. You want to have a different broadcast team do that feed. There's got to be a solution. you got to stop blacking out the games. To me, that is the problem, that you are forcing people in certain markets when they're Mets fans and they're not in the Mets territory and there's a blackout for the Mets. Like if you're in Philadelphia, I can't watch the Mets. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. There's no reason for it. And I think that, to me, is one of the biggest things that they can do to grow the game. The mics and all the other dressing, that's fine. You want to get it a little more hip. Ultimately, growing the game is access and making the videos online accessible. You know, old games. You know, wouldn't it be cool that you don't have to, like, scrub and go find a 1989 random Mets game because you want to go and relive a Greg Jeffries moment or a Kevin McReynolds moment or, you know, whatever, whatever your, you know, Cardinals fan, he wants to look at an old Tony Pena, you know, three for four day. It's just those are the things they should be focused on. All this other stuff is fine. But I think access to the game, access to highlights, access to old highlights, access to all the things that make the sport what it is will ultimately engage the current fan base at a higher level. And I think will allow people to watch the game at their pace, at their time, and maybe they want to piecemeal it in a way that, you know, is more real time rather than, you know, okay, let me wait till there's the highlight video tonight at midnight because I was blacked out and I can't, you know, I can't watch it. And yeah, you're paying for this stuff. It's not like you're not paying for MLB TV here. It's not, it's free. I'm not asking for it for free, but you're paying for it and then you only get, well, this is what you could get. Well, I'm not getting the whole thing for my money. It's ridiculous. So you have to have a sling box now somewhere so I can watch the Mets anywhere I go. But I have a sling box back at home, and I use it to the sling TV. So, you know, not not something I want to get too deep in here, but it was it just came to my mind. I thought it was cool. I am not for any of this stuff in, a, in, a, in, a, in an ongoing pl- pl- uh, way during the regular season. It's about the game. It's about it's a job. You have to focus. You have to be prepared. You know, baseball is a game of inches, and being distracted and goofing around on a microphone during the game with Gary, Keith, and Ron 
uh, d- does not allow these players to focus on the, 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 the task at hand, which is winning a baseball game, which is truly a game of inches. That's not a narrative. You see that day in and day out. All right, let's take a quick break. When I return, Brian Wright, the New York Mets all-time All-Stars, will talk about his new book. We'll get into a little different topic and conversation here. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five, because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. Joining me is Brian Wright. You guys may remember, we had him on the program a couple of years ago. He's the author of the book, Mets and Tens, Best and Worst of Amazing History. Uh, he has a new book out, and uh, it's a pretty great accomplishment at his age to have not one but two books out, but it's uh, the New York Mets all-time all-stars, the best players at each position for the Amazons, and it's a great conversation, baseball season starting, and Brian, welcome to the program, and uh, after your uh, book a couple of years ago, you went right back at it, and uh, you're putting together the all-time Mets All-Star team, so quite a project, quite an accomplishment. Welcome, and uh, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Mike. It's great to be on with you again, and yeah, uh, not too long after I finished that Mets and Tens, uh, I was asked to do this all-time uh, team and uh, yeah, it didn't didn't really take t- take too much time off. Maybe I'll take some time off after this. But uh, two books that really generate some debate. So I uh, love conversing with fans and kind of starting conversations. And both of these books really do that. So when you go through the book, uh, obviously you're using numbers and stats, and and you outline at, at the beginning of the, each segment what you're using, whether it be for the pitchers or the hitters. Knowing that you saw some of these guys, but not all of them. Did you use any kind of intangibles, uh, I, this research, of course, but interviews, going back to old videos, did you use anything outside of the numbers to make your decisions, which we'll get into? Most of them are, are pretty fair. Uh, there's a couple that I guess you could debate, and that's the point of this kind of book, but what are some of the yeah. intangibles you use to kind of get to the end result here? I really uh, put some emphasis on impact on the franchise. Um I mean, the most obvious person who impacted the franchise was Tom Seaver, and that you know, obviously with his you know his, his stats alone can put him uh, on the top, but uh, at the top, but um, just you know the way he you know transformed the how the the rest of the league looked at the Mets, uh, that really of course helped him. Uh, so take a guy, another guy like Keith Hernandez. Uh, when the Mets got him in June of 1983, the Mets were a perennial doormat. Uh, finished last or next to last several years in a row, he comes over and not only is he just a great first baseman, clutch hitter, uh, he also just changed the attitude because um, the Mets, I think, kind of at that time when they got him, they were just, there was little confidence and he uh, injected so much confidence in the Mets, uh, maybe not right away, but in 1984, they went from a last place team in 83 to a 91 team in 84. Uh, and that really says a lot about how impactful he was on the team and kind of his leadership, um, kind of turning that, helping turn that team around. Not not to mention Davey Johnson, Blake Good, but uh, Dale Strawberry, but something like that, like how someone's leadership um, during you know those kind of intangibles 
Um, someone like a Jerry Grody, who, if you look at his stats, uh, as far as hitting is concerned, doesn't come off, you know, doesn't like jump out uh, to you, but he really helped kind of mold or help mature the pitching rotation in the late 60s um, of Seaver and uh, Kuzman and Nolan Ryan. And as we all know, 1969, that team was really reliant on pitching, and Jerry Grady had a lot to do with that. So things like that um, really factored in, not just with not only traditional stats, but also kind of the sabermetric stats that uh, I normally don't use to, to evaluate players, but I felt like I had to. I felt like I had to use a little bit of both because, um, you know, the casual fan and also um, the diehards are, are looking at this and wanted to use a little bit of everything. You can check out Brian on Twitter, Brian Wright, at Brian Wright 86 Roman and Littlefield is the publisher, and Brian also uh, is currently the managing editor of a new publication from uh, Sabre entitled Metrospective, which is uh, chronicling the greatest games in Met history. That's always fun looking back. Uh, part of any project like this, and I may be working backwards a little bit, but I, I liked when I got the, the book, I said, let me see who the honorable mentions are, because you always want to see who just fell short. And that's always the fun mm-hmm. part of the debate. You know, some of these positions, it's hard to argue with you, Tom Seaver, for example, although we'll get into a debate about pitching in a minute. But there are some that I'm sure as you were going through, you really wanted to put into the Pantheon, but because of a variety of reasons, they just fell short. Give me one or two names that were really tough for you. That, you, know, you put them in the honorable mention, but you really wanted to find a way to get them into the lineup or the rotation or the bullpen. Yeah, the difficult the difficult part about kind of being relegated to position was that you could have a great crop of players at a certain position and leave them out where another position maybe they weren't uh, quite uh, on the, the par of those other players, uh, you know, in other positions. But you had to, you know, uh, you you included them because they were you know the one the first or second or third best. So pitching is the best example of that, and it was really tough to leave some some of those names out. And honestly, you could. Uh, two of the honorable mentions that I left out, uh, you could totally say to me, like, hey, they deserve to be in. And I really couldn't have much uh, argument with that. I mean, I could have a good argument, but at, at the same time, it's like I could see that where you could, you could slide them in there. Uh, I made sure in the pitching category, I included 10 pitchers, and I had seven starters. Not that I'm having a seven-man rotation, but who knows, and that's why I do that this year. Um, but I wanted to... Yeah, I want because there's such a disparity, so many better, so many more great starting pitchers the Mets have had that I wanted to recognize all their great starting pitchers. Uh, made sure to have three relievers who I thought were uh, were qualified, but um, yeah, even if, even having seven starting pitchers, uh, leaving a few out uh, were really tough. I had to leave out uh, guys like David Cohn and Sid Fernandez, who you know could make a great case for both of them, um, but they fell just short. Uh, the toughest debate I had internally, and I actually switched this, I, where I flipped back and forth, was backup left fielder. So I made sure in, in my, you know, how I selected these guys to, um, to judge them or to kind of uh, uh, measure them based on the position that they had played the most uh, up, to the, up to this time. So um, I had to, you know, judge guys like uh, Cleon Jones and Kevin McReynolds and Michael Conforto because Michael Conforto at this time has played more games in left than he has in right, but obviously corner outfielder kind of a little bit interchangeable. So um, that was the toughest one between Michael Conforto and Kevin McReynolds. I went back and forth 
and it went very it went down to the wire uh, down to like the end of the 2019 season um and i couldn't argue with either choice um so that was the toughest you could go either way and it was i just went one way or the other uh, i just you know decided at basically the end of the 2019 season um and it was again you could go with my other choice and i'd be like eh, i don't have a problem with that either so those were the two areas and as you mentioned a lot of honorable mentions and honorable mentions that um there were players i didn't even mention in there that i said oh you know you could throw that name in and it would still be a logical pick so um when you get down to like not just the starters but like the backups and then maybe the, the near backups um you can there are a lot of choices it's, that's what makes this a fun book Absolutely. The book is All-Time All-Stars, the New York Mets, the best players uh, at each position for the Amazons. Funny, Conforto McReynolds, uh, just thinking about it, very similar uh, players that I think at different eras put up big Mm -hmm. numbers. Now, Conforto still has a lot of time left in his career, but I think at times leave uh, fans and media wanting. I think sometimes the numbers and what the perception is is very different. Um, When you talk about underrated players, uh, John Matlock made it, and I got to tell you, when he was named to the Mets Hall of Fame, when I first uh, looked at that, I was like, I don't know. But then I really dived into him, and I'm like, you know, his seasons are right up there, uh, some of them, with the Seavers, the DeGroms, and what have yeah. you. And a guy that did make it that may be slightly overrated and looked a little bit better because of his broadcasting career is Ron Darling. Because Ron Darling, mm-hmm. when you really peel the onion, good player. Good pitcher, solid pitcher, and some of the big spots in the playoffs didn't come up quite nearly as big as a, a, an Al Leiter uh, yeah. who, who did make it and what have you. So I'm curious about those two guys because I think Matlock I've had a more of an appreciation for the more I read about him. Uh, and Darling, I, as much as I love Darling as a broadcaster, uh, some of those games in the playoffs in 86, he just, even though they may have won, he was not a, a big part of those games. And then, of course, there's game 788 that we all remember as well. Yeah, no, no. I mean, that's that's a great point. Um, you know, that's I judge these a lot of different criteria to judge these players. Uh, not only just regular season stats, but also big game performances, whether it's the postseason or uh, just you know big games in say September. Um, Darling, I mean, that was kind of a knock on him. Uh, was that you said you know game six uh, or game seven of the '86 World Series? Of course, he didn't make it. I don't think he made it out of the third inning. Uh, and Sid Fernandez bailed him out and the offense as well. Uh, game seven of '88 uh, didn't have a great. Obviously, that was not great. Defense didn't support him very well. Um, but he did have a few. Uh, I'm not. This is not the reason I, I included him. But he did have some uh, good performances. Uh, I think in uh, the World Series, the first two appearances, game one. Uh, you know, lost only because of a Tim Tuffle error, and then seven shutout innings in Game Four, uh, and is I believe fourth on the all-time win list when wins actually uh, meant a little more. Uh, I think he left the Mets with 99 victories, uh, and really got overshadowed in '85 and '86 because of uh, guys like Dwight Gooden and in '86 like Bob Ojeda. So uh, I felt that he had made it because of kind of the overall. When looking at the overall picture, he was um, he was uh, good enough to make it. Um, Matlack. Uh, I think is an under very underrated. He kind of had a Jacob Degrom like season in 1974. Uh, he had uh, a great, you know, ERA was very low, had no run support, um, and didn't get any Cy Young uh, voting as well. So he had, a, I think he, I mean, he may have finished with an even, you know, like a very a, a 500 record. Uh, but if you look at him compared to Seaver and Kuzman during his time, 
Um, not that far off. I mean, he was a very good pitcher, and I thought I thought both were deserving of uh, getting into the Mets Hall of Fame. I will agree. I think Darling's uh, career stint as a broadcaster and a great broadcaster has really uh, heightened his stature, um, and, you know, giving fans more appreciation of him. But I still think he was good enough to be one of the seven uh, best starting pitchers in Mets history. I wonder if the other position, because you could look at it from as players in their prime, you know, probably Gary Carter was a little bit better. I'm a big Piazza guy. Uh, Piazza named the starting catcher. That must have been a tough one because I know Carter was at the end of his career. And if you think about it, if the Gary Carter trade was made today, there might be a lot more criticism of it because of the young players the Mets gave up for a catcher that had bad knees only had a couple of good years left. If you didn't win with him, it was a disaster. Now, other than Yubi yeah. Brooks, none of those guys uh, worked out. But think about it. I wonder, was that a little close to the catcher conversation than maybe, uh, you know, to the modern fan it may not be? But if you really dive into those players, and I saw both play, uh, Gary was at the end of his career, Mike in, the, in his prime. Uh, it's not as obvious as, as, as you may think. Yeah, no, Carter, uh, yeah, you, I agree with you. I think if Carter, the Carter trade was made today, it would have been, a little bit, it would have been criticized. At the time, it was a fantastic, you know, people loved it. I mean, they gave up Hubie Brooks, who was a, a fan favorite, um, but it turned out great because they won the championship. I mean, but Carter had uh, about two two really good seasons. 85 and 86 were really good. 87 was okay. And then he really tailed off. His knees got the better of him. Um, but yeah, he, um, yeah, he was uh, a very, an impact player. We talk about kind guys who turned around or, or helped accelerate uh the turnaround i mean they had won 90 games in 84 and then when he comes in uh he helps kind of add to that spirit of the team uh he was the last piece really to the championship uh puzzle and that was you know it was not as difficult to include carter because i included the third catcher so i uh but i was pretty um solidified in putting piazza as a starter because as you said his offensive uh, numbers in those years, even in that era, uh, were far superior. And I tried to judge these players in the eras in which they played. I didn't want to be like, if Carter had played today or if Carter was traded to the Mets today, how would that be perceived? Because I think that would add to, that would create too many, too much speculation uh, among, among fans. So I tried to do it in, I tried to you know evaluate these players in the vacuum uh, of the, the time period of which they were with the Mets. So Carter was uh, a pretty easy selection on the on the as a catcher. But Piazza was clearly the best uh, catcher the Mets ever had. And, and I don't I don't think if, I mean fans may some may be young too young to realize because uh, they had just been born. But Piazza's impact the franchise was turning things around, but they were very moribund <laughs> until uh, yeah. Piazza arrived. The the day he was acquired, having remembered that vividly, and the impact on attendance and the feel of relevancy in, yeah. the, in the wake of the Yankees record winning season. I think in the context of that, I think that alone, I think to me would be the difference maker. Forget about the numbers. I don't know about you, but to me, that's, that's yeah. the difference maker. And he may be outside of Seaver because of errors. And, and I've said this to Mike directly when I've talked to him, I said, I think you're the most, I don't think you realize how important your acquisition was to an era of Mets baseball that, that may only yeah. be second to uh, the eighties. Yeah, no, I, I grew up uh, in the Piazza, you know, time period, and I loved Mike Piazza even before he got to the Mets. And I remember that whole situation where he left the Dodgers, went to the Marlins, then went to the Mets. I mean, Steve Phillips was not going to make that trade, and thanks to Nelson Doubleday, Doubleday helped and helped initiate 
that deal from the Marlins to the Mets. And when that happened, I mean, as you said, the Mets were trending upward. I mean, they had won 88 games in 1997. They were they were like an overachieving, or I guess an under. You know, they were they were doing more than they were capable of. Uh, but they were never going to be a contender. And Mike Piazza comes in, and they were immediately a contender. That changed, you know, the whole perception. I mean, that first game, it you know, sold out. And he struggled at first, but he, 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 it didn't take long for him to show uh, what he was capable of. And, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's unfortunate they didn't win a championship out of that. But um, kind of, yeah, it, it made it where that there wasn't just the Yankees in town. I mean, the Mets were, had uh, had some of the back page because of Mike Piazza. And uh, for seven years, he was a you know, great, very impactful player, and it's only fitting that he's the second Met uh, to be inducted in the Hall of Fame. You love lefties in the bullpen. Oh, lefty bullpen, my friend. <laughs> you love him, Tug McGraw, John Franco, uh, Jesse Orozco. Uh, you love that those lefties. Yeah, no, I didn't want to uh, make a team based on do I want to just like I didn't. I did it based on the, the who were the best. I I didn't didn't totally try to say, oh, I want to have a right-hander in the bullpen or something like that. Because as I said, I had seven starting pitchers. So I guess any of, if you wanted to play an actual game, you could have put any of, you know, someone like a darling or, or uh, you know, I don't know, take another starting pitcher, Jacob deGrom, and come bring him out of the bullpen. I don't know uh, if you want to play that imaginary game. But, yeah, no, it's, it's ironic. It's just, you know, coincidental that there are three relief pitchers. Uh, uh, it's, that's the hard that's another hard thing to judge is like relief pitchers in different eras. Tug McGraw, you know, would go three innings and in one World Series game, he went six innings, I think, um, against the A's. So, you know, Tug McGraw has a bigger body of work, um, but he was great in 69. Didn't really get to participate in the postseason. It's just the starters wound up uh, doing a lot of the work. Uh, but in 73, he was, you know, if people remember that time, uh, not only with his uh, rally cry, you got to believe, but the way he performed at the end of the season, uh, he really just mirrored uh, the Mets' turnaround because he had had a terrible start to the season uh, and just, you know, the light came on and he was dominant at the, uh, in, in September especially and was also big in the postseason. Um, John Franco, most saves in Mets history. I think a lot of people might say he's a little overrated. I might agree with that. Um, but most saves, and he did it when the Mets, for the most part, when the Mets were terrible. So he had didn't have as many chances to save games. Uh, and for me, I know that he created a lot of uh, heart palpitations. But uh, overall, I think he he snuck in. Uh, and then Jesse Orozco um, had a great '86 postseason. I remember seeing on Twitter yesterday someone posted something about his postseason, and and I love seeing that. Uh, had a one of the forgotten pitching seasons is his 1983 season. I think he was like third in sure. Cy Young voting. Uh, so I, yeah, included him, but yeah, it is coincidental that there are three left-handers and, it, and I guess today that they would, uh, they'd have to go for three batters if they, if they, if they, uh, pitch today in today's game. Yep. And, and all three, I mean, Jesse later in his career was more situational, but all three, uh, could absolutely, uh, uh, get that done. I'm going to tell you one guy. And by the way, we have Brian Wright with us. Uh, the book is, uh, uh, all, New York Mets all-time all-stars, the best players at each position for the Amazings. A really good book. Baseball season starting, and I think it stirs up some fun debate. And I think as uh, we're talking, it's not just about the numbers, although Brian is using that. It's about the memories and the impact and things like that. One player that snuck in as a reserve that I think it's really based on, what, three weeks in October? Uh, and, I, and I love him, uh, but I also had a lot of <laughs> issues with him, too is Daniel Murphy, because I have to tell you, prior to October 2015, I don't think Daniel Murphy makes it. I have no problem with him making yeah. it, 
But if you look back, he, he certainly was uh, at times was wrong place, wrong time. I mean, they almost I mean, yeah. a lot of people don't realize because he didn't hit with power when Sandy Alderson almost took over. He was he was threatened to be sent yeah. down. I mean, I don't think people realize that that's a true story. They were like, hey, you're not hitting with yeah. power. And uh, and yeah. that's only a couple of years before he he becomes uh, uh, NLCS MVP and, and very well would have been remembered forever if the Mets had won a championship. And then they rue that uh, with those couple of years after. Now, though, he's declining now. And and I don't think Murphy hurts as much now to Mets fans, especially because Jeff McNeil's in there in the lineup. And he's very similar in some ways. Yeah. Uh, I think is Murphy because of October 2015 in there, because I think that changed it a lot for me, at least. Saying, all right, I get it, Daniel Murphy. Yeah, so, so I was on another podcast and asked about who was a player when you originally made the team, uh, like kind of like a drafting it. You you looked at it and said, oh, they can't possibly make it. And then later on, you just realized they did. The guy was Daniel Murphy. When I made, like, I just like started, you know, doing it. You know, my when I started this book in like you know November of 2018, I just wrote down a list of players. Okay, off the top of my head, you should be the second baseman. And of course, you put Edgar Alfonso. Uh, and then I was like, okay, Danny Murphy, maybe. I was like, ah, not really. And then I look at it, and I think I wrote in there that if not for t- October 2015, he's like borderline, and, and you could say maybe he doesn't make it. But October 2015 really put over the top. Um, and he was a consistent hitter. He didn't have power uh, until October 2015, uh, but was pretty consistent. I mean, I I, I do have pause with just the, the fielding, and the base running adventures that he put us all through. Um, but as a hitter, I think he, you know, averaged like 30 doubles when he was healthy, um, was fairly consistent as a hitter, uh, did not show power, but um, I think he was good enough to be, as I said, a borderline candidate. But October 2015, I mean, that was something I, we, no one's ever seen before, not just within the perspective of the Mets, but in baseball history. Um, so that's what did it. And it was a close debate for me between uh, him and Wally Bachman, and uh, Felix Mion, even like Ron Hunt and Jeff Kent. I mean, that was that was a group of like four players, uh, four or five players. I think I had that was just like try, just looking at the numbers and trying to see what would give someone the edge. So that was yeah. So Murphy got it based on October 2015. I will say that. How long before you think Jacob Degrom could be? Look, Seaver territory is tough. I don't think he could ever achieve that no. because of the time that Seaver means. But uh, you know, certainly Gooden. I mean, Gooden had a great '84, '85, and he wasn't bad in '86, '87. But after '87, I mean, what, if you start looking at the advanced metrics, and I think a lot of people don't realize Gooden had shoulder issues and serious yeah. shoulder issues before the drugs. I mean, he had a torn capsule or strain capsule. That's a big deal in today's. That's what Chris Young had. And he did come back and he did pitch for a while. Now he wasn't the same, but you could understand from that. And, and there's a lot of debate on that, but I think the Grom is not too far off from good in status. Uh, maybe, because, maybe never 85. Cause I think there's a certain lore to that, but as you get mm-hmm. more and more away from the certain generation of Mets fans, I think the Grom is going to, at least in my opinion, overshadow Dwight uh, not just because mm-hmm. of the off-the-field situation, but because he may be better. He may be better in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think if, if uh, DeGrom puts together a, 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 you know, a couple more good seasons, even, even, I'm not even talking about matching the Cy Young seasons, past Gooden for sure. As you said, I agree. He's never going to uh, eclipse Tom Seaver in terms of the time period in which they pitch. I mean, no, and it's you know, 
in fairness to Jacob DeGrom, you can't it, you can't match Tom Seaver's impact because of the time in which Tom Seaver pitched, and as I said earlier, changed the perception of a, of a team. And one line I use in the book is, Tom Seaver is the franchise as long as there is one. Um, but Jacob DeGrom, it's interesting. I, I looked at, I was doing some, you know, a series of, of tweets about Tom Seaver in the week leading up to the book, and um, was one of my tweets was about comparing Seaver to DeGrom, and in their first six seasons, and again, you have to take into account that how much workload Seaver has put in uh, compared to Jacob DeGrom, but if you use the stats that kind of even things out or, you know, kind of take away the particular eras, uh, DeGrom's uh, ERA plus and whip are slightly better, um, which is really just kind of hard to, to, not hard to believe, but it's just, it's hard to think that someone would be a little bit better than Seaver. He'll never be Tom Seaver, but he can definitely surpass Dwight Gooden, um, even if he doesn't win another Cy Young. I mean, he can just put some solid seasons together. But it'd be really interesting if he were to win a Cy Young, uh, a third Cy Young, whether it's you know, this year, which would be amazing, or just another year down the line, um, you might get some generational debate um, from you know millennials, which sadly I am one of them, and uh, you know an older generation who would say, hey, you know my pitcher is better. No, my pitcher is better. That would be interesting. But I I, I think Seaver wins that one hands down. But Degrom is definitely number two. Can be number two very soon. No, it'll it'll be interesting. You're right. If he continues to pitch and pitch for a long time and pitch well, especially in an offensive era, different ballparks, uh, for sure on that. Did you have a player or players that you have a different learning or a different appreciation for uh, after doing this? I think with any book project, you have to come away with something that no matter how much you follow the franchise or you thought you knew, as you dive into it, you're like, you know, I really appreciate this guy or this team or this group of guys more. So what what was that for you? Yeah, no, uh, one picture that we already talked about was John Matlack just because he was kind of just, uh, you know, under the radar and was almost like a third fiddle to uh, Seaver and Kuzman. And then Jerry Kuzman was really the guy that I kind of got a lot of appreciation for, even though I had actually conversed with him before. He did the forward for my first book um, to do the deep dive on him and, you could almost make the case he is was a better big game pitcher than Tom Seaver. Uh, if you look at like game two of the 69 World Series when the Mets were down 1-0, uh, he comes back with six no-hit innings. And then, of course, he pitches game five after giving up those three early runs, shuts the Orioles down, and the Mets win the World Series. Uh, and then 73 had two uh, pretty good postseason performances, one in the NLCS and another in game five of the World Series. Uh, and, you know, not even – actual play postseason games, he pitched a key game in 69 against the Cubs when they were, you know, chasing Chicago for the NL East. Uh, there was an incident in which uh, Tommy Agee got hit in the first inning, uh, bottom of the first. Uh, Bill Hands was the pitcher for the Cubs, and he kind of wanted to uh, see if he could rattle the Mets. And uh, top of the second first batter, Jerry Kuzman hits Ron Santo in the wrist. I don't know if this would ever take place today, um, but it was fun to, to read about this because I, I read it in Eric Sherman's book uh, that Art Shamsky wrote with him. Uh, and Shamsky, I believe, said that when he when Kuzman did that, when he plunked uh, Ron Santo after uh, uh, Tommy Agee got hit by Bill Hands, he goes, that, that like, gained so, they gained so much respect for Jerry Kuzman. Uh, and the Mets went on to win that game, and we know the rest of the story. But Jerry Kuzman and John Matlack were the guys who, like, when looking at them, were like, okay, they were – even better than I originally thought, and I thought I knew a lot. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the managers, I mean, I don't think there's much controversy with Gil Hodges being the manager, David Johnson and Bobby V, uh, the coaches, uh, three really good managers. The managers, and the Mets haven't really had a great history with managers, uh, if you really dive into it. Um, but maybe there be, might be some in your uh, you know, fan age group that might be mad that Terry Collins wasn't part of it. I have no issues with it, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, I think it's pretty obvious, you know, the Frank Cashin is the GM, uh, Joan Payson is the owner. I think that's the part of the book that, to me, just, you know, is, is a lot easier because, unfortunately, the Mets history in those areas, front office ownership manager, has been quite as good. Yeah, you're right. It was not as difficult to go to, to go into the uh, those kind of areas where the front office or manager area. Um, and that's what I wanted to include. I think a lot of – you see, like, on the Internet, a lot of people do this. You know, hey, what's your all-time Mets team? And you can use a lot of different criteria to make a team, which makes, again, makes this book interesting. But I wanted to kind of take that a step further, not only include a manager, but I figured uh, to include the coaches, as I call them, you know, the honorable mention managers, because I, I try to – and I did this with Mets and Tens. I try to tell the history of the Mets in a certain way, and I feel like you can't tell the history of the Mets without – talking about uh, Davey Johnson and Bobby Valentine. And Gil Hodges, I, you know, with all, res- all due respect to Davey Johnson, who's the winningest manager in Mets history, Gil Hodges, as if Tom Seaver was the player that changed the perception of the Mets, Gil Hodges was the man who changed the perception of the Mets. And the Mets could not have won the 69 World Series without Gil Hodges. Uh, and I just, I don't know if I could say that about Davey Johnson. I know he was important, but Gil Hodges was far more important to the 69 Mets uh, in the way he just constructed the roster and just the way he just motivated the players. Uh, and as far as GM and owner, I figured those were two easy choices. Cashin took the Mets from basically rubbish uh, when he took over in 1980 and built that team, starting with selecting Daryl Strawberry with the first pick in the 80 draft, drafting Dwight Gooden, trading for Ron Darling, trading for Hernandez, trading for Carter. Uh, you, you can say, you know, after 86, he kind of chipped away at that foundation when he traded away Kevin Mitchell, let Ray Knight go, traded away Lenny Dykstra and Roger McDowell in 89. Uh, but you can't deny that he really built the team to a championship level uh, with all those moves that he made. And then Joan Payson, uh, as an owner, was, was an easy choice. I feel like she set down the foundation, uh, even though it was you could relate to her because she was a fan just like us. She would sit, you know, in the front row. She wasn't a, a person who would uh, sit in the suite and hobnob, even though she, you know, her bank account was far, far different than a fan. Uh, fans could still relate to her. I remember there's a, there's a great story in, in 1969. Uh, she had planned a trip to Europe. She, like, did this every year because in September, she planned it in September because in September, you know, the Mets weren't going to be in contention. And then the Mets get into contention. But she still still takes the trip because she doesn't want to jinx the team. I feel like feel like everyone can relate to that. Those that are especially those that are superstitious. So uh, I feel that she started kind of she the way that she acted and the way that not only the way that she um, cared about her players and the players loved her, um, but that kind of attitude or the uh, kind of the the, the way of uh, the loyalty that she showed. Uh, I think fans have kind of followed in kind, and, and that was very important in terms of making the Mets what they are. So, Brian, what's next for you? Obviously, you might have events. You're going to be promoting the book. The book is the New York Mets, all-time all-stars, the best players at each position for the Amazings. Really good book. Should generate generate a lot of conversation, memories, and debate. So give the listeners something to know what's going on, at BrianWright86 on Twitter. 
what can they expect from you as we get into the baseball season throughout the 2020 season and the summer? Yeah, no, I'll be uh, on Twitter kind of posting content related to the book or related to the Mets at least. Um, I'll be up in New York uh, for an event at the Grand Central uh, uh, chapter or the Grand Central location of the New York Public Library on uh, uh, Tuesday, March the 24th at 6 o'clock, just doing a, a book discussion. Uh, we can talk about everything Mets, so it'll be good to talk just on the eve of opening day. Uh, have a, a few appearances just on you know the radio or, or television, hopefully TV. Um, so we'll be up there. Uh, the week of opening day, and, and we'll be at opening day as well. Um, but uh, if anyone's interested in a signed copy of the book, feel free to direct message me at BrianWright86. I'm happy to provide that to you. And uh, hopefully there'll be some uh, extra additional events as the season goes on because, uh, as we had talked about, this is a discussion that's not going to be just relegated to the start of baseball season. It'll go on as the season goes along. Well, and this Mets team, I think, stacks up well in a fantasy league of uh... – teams and uh, other teams uh, history may not win but it stacks up pretty well it gives you a, a better appreciation for the Mets Brian appreciate your time here on a Sunday uh let's do it again great great work second book in uh, a couple of years that's really good stuff be proud and we'll talk again all right my friend all right thanks so much Mike it's great to be on with you again you got it Brian Wright at Brian Wright 86 on Twitter Mets all-stars good debate good uh, situation Always like kind of getting into this stuff. And it's that time of the year where books are a big part of the start of the baseball season. Get through some of the, I call the dog days of spring training as you're seeing the end of the tunnel for spring training and the off season and the, uh, the new 2020 season right in front of us. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more right after this. We pull no punches with opinions on the Talking Mets podcast, like when Kevin Kernan of the New York Post, also known as America's most beloved sports writer, told us why Brody Van Wagenen and the Mets appreciate his style of reporting. I personally, AMBS is tired of the whining and he's not dealing with it anymore. When they need to be crushed, it's like Brody told me the other day. He goes, uh, you know, it, it's nice that, you know, we appreciate the fact that you're, you're being honest and fair with us, but I also know that if you need to let us have it, you will, because I remember that day in Miami where you crushed me, and that's the truth. I just write what's really happening. I don't have an agenda. I, you know, and uh, in spring training, you got to give them a chance. I, I mean, if you look at the lineup, it looks okay. It looks okay. And we all know they got a double-side young winner in uh, DeGrom, and maybe Syndergaard gets his act together. Edwin Diaz, of course, is a key, and I, I dealt with him the other day, spoke to him, told me he's not afraid of New York, which I thought was interesting, and he seems to have a, he's, he's really got a good attitude. He's accountable. We'll see if... Um, they tweak some things with Hefner and maybe get, uh, he needs to knock guys off the plate. It's really that simple. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmitspodcast.com. All right, great stuff from Brian Wright. Uh, Brian Wright is on Twitter, and you can get him on Twitter, Brian Wright 86 at Brian Wright 86 and the book is uh, The New York Mets, All-Time All-Stars, The Best Players at Each Position for the amazing so i want to thank brian wright we've had a pretty long podcast so i'm going to wrap up of course i want to thank all of you for listening we'll be back with another edition of the podcast next week of course you could check me out all the time at the talkingmetspodcast.com you could send me a tweet at mike silver media and you get the show on apple Podcasts, stitcher spotify pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire send me an email i'd love to hear from you feedback on the show or anything i had to say 
we, we tend to have you know mail bags from time to time. I've backed off a little bit on that. Feedback was that you guys didn't like that as much, but maybe we'll get into some mail bags at some point throughout the season. So check me out and send me an email, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Enjoy your week. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast next week. Take care, everybody. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.